1: Tuesday, 20th of September, 2016. News channels across the world are debating the upcoming US presidential election. And in Washington, technology journalist Brian Krebs sits down for another day at the office. He logs into his blog, the incredibly popular Krebs on Security, and quickly realises something isn't quite right. His site is offline, but despite working in internet security, he doesn't have the foggiest idea why. What will become clear later is that Krebs has been singled out by one of the biggest cyber attacks the world has ever seen. Almost a month later, October 2016. And again, without warning, there's another attack. This time it's not on Krebs or any other individual person. It's on Dyne.com, a company that, at the time, maintained data centres around the world, essentially huge banks of computers that keep the internet working. This attack is so successful that most of the east coast of the USA has problems with their internet connection and vital systems fall offline. In the next couple of months, almost a million Germans, customers of Deutsche Telekom, see their home internet hubs stop working, and the entire African country of Liberia loses its internet connectivity. So, what or who caused such widespread internet havoc? Was it a network of hackers in Russia or a terrorist cell waging cyber warfare? It was neither of them. The whole thing was carried out by three college students sitting in their dorm rooms. So how did this trio bring down the internet across most of the east coast of America, the entire country of Liberia, and for millions of Germans trying to get online? They did it by taking control of people's smart devices, electronic gadgets that are connected to the internet. They ordered hundreds of thousands of smart devices all over the world to connect to particular places on the internet at the same time. The servers that handle people's requests every time you open a new page or whatever. Now, when those smart devices all connected to those servers at exactly the same time, the increase in demand then caused a huge power outage that brought Down the internet for millions of people. And here's the thing you have likely got some similar smart devices in your home. Smart televisions, smart speakers, smart doorbells, even smart baby monitors. Which begs the question could the smart devices in your home be used as part of a worldwide cyber attack? According to a 2019 survey carried out by the Office for National Statistics, the average UK household owns more than 10 smart devices, from smart TVs to smart doorbells to smart assistants that help you do anything from turn the lights on to open the front door, all by just using your voice. And that number of home smart devices is increasing, by 26% in the last three years, in fact. We are welcoming these technological interlopers into our homes with open arms. But does that put us and our families at risk? I'm Greg Foote. I'm a science presenter and producer. And today's Witch Investigates asks, how hackable is your home? is a podcast from the UK's consumer champion. We work to make life simpler, fairer and safer for everyone. Our first season focused on claims of sustainability and I dug into the evidence to discover whether buying an electric car or going plant-based or plastic-free does genuinely reduce your environmental footprint or whether some of these claims of sustainability are simply greenwashing. This is the first episode of season two, where I'm going to be looking into issues of tech and security. We're starting with home hacking. Our next investigation will extend that into car hacking and asks whether someone could take control of the wheel while you're driving. And in the rest of the season, I'll be finding out whether you are being tracked online. How to protect your digital money, both from scammers and hackers, and how to spot a fake review so you don't get conned into buying a product that doesn't deliver. If you've got something that you would like us to investigate, do get in touch. I'm at Greg Foot on social, and which is at Which UK. Coming up, I ask who may actually want to hack into our homes.
0: Sometimes they are people doing it for fun. Sometimes they are people looking to steal information about you. Sometimes they're doing targeted attacks. Sometimes it's a nation state. North Korea's been implicated in all sorts of hacks in the past. Ditto Russia. I hear how they can hack in.
1: Because
2: all of these things are thrown together and connected, if we could hack into like a switch or a light bulb, we could like, you know, escalate the privilege level to get into the camera or
1: door locks and learn how our love of a bargain could be part of the problem.
3: There's a motive by the cheaper manufacturers to develop something as quick as possible and get it on the market. I don't think it's necessarily even always then that they don't care. I think a lot of manufacturers just don't understand security.
1: I want to start, as I often do, by asking you a question. The ONS study that I mentioned in the intro says that a couple of years ago, the average UK household owned 10 or so smart devices. So how many do you have? In a witch survey that was commissioned especially for this podcast, we asked over 1,400 people what smart devices they own. One of the most popular devices that came up time and time again was the smart doorbell, the kind that not only allows you to see who is at your front door when you're away from home, but it also gives you the power to unlock that door from your phone, something that I'm going to be picking up on later. Phones and laptops were regulars too, of course, as were smart televisions and Wi-Fi connected baby monitors, and I've got a rather worrying report on those on the way. This smart device invasion is a relatively recent happening. According to authors Lee Rain and Gemma Anderson, in their 2017 paper, The Internet of Things Connectivity Binge, in 1999, that's 22 years ago, just 4% of the world's population was online. Huh, That means that in the year that the term The Internet of Things was coined, only 4 in 100 people were online.
3: IoT, Internet of Things, is basically any device which is connected to the internet in some way. So traditionally, the internet was just about computers, but these days, everything from your fridge to your washing machine to your kettle can have what's called an IP address, which is what allows it to be connected and routable or reachable across the internet.
1: This is Matt Lewis, a tech security expert whose company, NCC, works with us here at Witch to examine the safety and security of the connected devices that make up this Internet of Things, a.k.a. smart devices.
0: A smart device is a device that connects to the Internet, usually going via the cloud, but also usually built in some kind of artificial intelligence or machine learning so that it can respond intuitively to you.
1: That's which computing editor, journalist Kate Bevan, someone who you'll be unsurprised to hear loves a smart device.
0: I got my first smart home devices probably about eight years ago. That's when I went app controlled for all my lights. And then when Alexa came along and I could link my Alexa into it and I can control all my lights by voice, that was a great step for me. And now we take it for granted that we can shout at our smart assistants to turn the television on or to you know switch on the lights in the bathroom.
1: So what smart devices does Kate have now then?
0: Starting at the front door, I have a smart doorbell. I have a smart assistant in my bedroom. Actually, I've got two smart assistants in my bedroom. I've got
1: yes, as expected, assistant. Kate has an above-average number of smart devices all over her house. What was unexpected, though, was this one.
0: And I've got a connected cat flap that I built myself.
1: Yeah, you heard that right. As well as letting Kate know when her feline friend has entered or exited the home, it also links to a Twitter account which posts a picture. Uh, Just search for Daphne's flap, if that's your jam. But can tech security expert Matt outdo Kate on his number of smart devices? How many smart devices
3: do you have at home? So I have several laptops, computers, phones, etc. I have the Fire Stick, which essentially turns my TV into a smart TV. These are all things that have been sent to me for our research. So I play around with them, get some findings, but then once the work's done, I turn them off and never turn them on ever again. I think from a lot of the work that we've been doing with which the past few years, it put me off. I'm not comfortable with the home IoT security space yet. I think I need, as a consumer, a lot more assurance before I'd start using the tech in anger personally.
1: And here lies the reason for today's investigation. There is a huge amount of concern about having these smart devices in our homes. Later this season, I'm going to be investigating a question of whether smart assistants like Alexa or Siri or Google Assistant are always listening and what the implications of that could be. But today, I want to address the bigger concerns, not just whether your connected devices could potentially be hacked and used to cause widespread issues of the type I mentioned in the intro, but also whether they could enable untrustworthy and unwelcome individuals to see inside our homes or have a rootle through our personal data. If Matt, who is one of the country's leading tech security experts, is concerned about having them in his house, should we all be worried? Before I share some of the more sinister stories of smart device hacking with you, I want to first highlight that, as well as being convenient for many of us, this tech can really be a lifeline for some people.
0: I discovered the good things about it a year or so ago when I put my back out and I couldn't get off the sofa. And I suddenly realized being able to answer the door via my phone, or at least see who was there, see if I needed to drag myself there, being able to control all the lights with my voice, which I do, I suddenly realized how incredibly important that be for vulnerable people because I was vulnerable for a few weeks with that so I think there's a really interesting and important use case there and there's a pilot scheme I think in Dorset at the moment to put smart devices into older people's homes who've been discharged from hospital precisely to help them stay in their homes.
1: This scheme that Kate mentions will use sensors installed in people's homes to track behaviour and electricity usage with the aim of spotting any potential health problems. And the technology company behind the research claim it could reduce the number of support visits patients need by 780 hours each year, leading to annual savings around £250,000 in council spend having internet connected smart devices offering 24 7 remote monitoring and communication can play a vital role in helping vulnerable people lead a more enriching more engaged safer life bespoke technology that has smart connectivity integrated into it can help even further in 2018 an intelligent healthcare service robot research institute was set up in china Catchy, hey? It produced a robot meant to look like an eight-year-old boy that speaks, moves around a house and can even allow users to watch movies and make video calls. Three years later and researchers have reported that those who lived alongside the smart robots have, quote, happier hearts as a result. But yes, it's time to turn from the helpful to the harmful. Time for some stories of when smart devices like the ones you have at home were hacked and what happened. Let's start with a couple of lighter ones. In season one of this podcast, I mentioned the smart fish tank in the Las Vegas casino aquarium that enabled its owner to autonomously control the temperature of the tank, even feed the fish. However, it also enabled a clever hacker, five and a bit thousand miles away in Finland, to use the fish tank's internet connectivity to hack their way into the casino's network and steal plenty of sensitive data. Here's another. Last year, researchers from technology firm SEC Consult found that the private lives of at least 50,000 users had been exposed by a sex toy. The uh, smart device could be remotely controlled via the internet from a mobile phone. And it was found to have multiple vulnerabilities, which put at risk not only the privacy and data of its owners, but also their physical safety. But now for a more disturbing one. I'm going to tell you the story of American couple Ellen and Nathan Rigney. They'd recently welcomed a new addition to their family. And like most parents, a baby monitor was one of the first things they bought. Now, one night, the parents woke up to hear a weird beeping. And then, to their horror, a stranger's voice in their baby's room. They raced up the stairs to check on their child, burst into the room and turned on the light, only to be told by the voice to turn the light back off again. Now, thankfully, there was no one in the room. The baby was still fast asleep. And when they turned the baby monitor off, they got rid of their internet intruder. But as I'm sure you can imagine, that was a night that Ellen and Nathan are unlikely to forget. Now, before you start getting too worried, the likelihood of someone hacking your baby monitor is distinctly small. If you do have one, though, and you'd like to know how to make it more secure, we've got an article on the Witch website with an easy guide. Uh, We'll put a link to that in the show notes. To find those, just head to the podcast's episode description, click on the show notes link, and in there will be a list of sources that we use to research and write this episode. That story, though, it illustrates the point that even the most innocuous of smart devices can be an entry point for hackers.
2: I want to say the easiest things to hack are
1: also like the thing that you wouldn't necessarily pay attention to. This is Kosal Kafle, a PhD student at the College of William & Mary based in Williamsburg, Virginia. In 2018, he was one of the researchers involved in an often quoted piece of work that showed that hackers could use a smart light bulb to gain access to someone's home. For me personally,
2: before going into that research, I wouldn't think of that as a security device or something that I would think that would hamper my security. The worst that could happen was a hacker could get in and turn it on or
1: off, right? However, it turns out that when Kosal and the team tried it, they could do more than that.
2: Because all of these things are thrown together and connected, if we could hack into like a switch or a light bulb, we could like, you know, escalate the privilege level to get into the camera or door locks. With that privilege, with that access, what you can do is you can tell the smartphone platform that you are really away from your home or you are in your home when you're not. So if you can sort of like control that, then you are also controlling a door lock or a security system or a camera because you are essentially falsifying what the other devices
1: are getting information from. In many homes, these smart devices are connected. They effectively talk to one another via a Wi-Fi connection. And that means that if you can hack into something like a light bulb, it effectively acts like a portal, giving hackers access to other devices connected to the same network. If you've got other devices with lax security on that network, then they could get into those too, potentially seeing sensitive data or gaining access to microphones or cameras, which means your home network, is only as strong as the weakest link in the smart device chain. Before I tell you about a super interesting hackable home experiment that Witch has done recently and the surprising results of how often the smart devices were hacked and who tried to hack them, I should quickly mention how a smart device is hacked, who does it and why. As tech expert Matt Lewis told me, to hack a device, i.e. to gain access to it, you simply need to find a vulnerability.
3: A vulnerability is a mechanism which might exist that allows someone unauthorized to gain a level of access or privilege to a system or, or a device. That could be a simple people or process-based vulnerability, as in someone has set a really weak password on a system, and so somebody else can maybe successfully guess that to gain an unauthorized access. On the technical level, um, the way that we develop and write software means that Sometimes we can make mistakes. Software is written by humans. Humans can make mistakes. Those mistakes can lead to errors which might be exploitable.
1: So if a smart device is connected to the internet, then a hacker can try loads of standard passwords and see if any of them let them in. That's what's called a brute force attack, and it's often automated.
3: There's software that you can easily set up and run that will scan the internet, try and find these devices, and they're trying big dictionaries of common default usernames and passwords like admin admin or password password and they can churn through you know hundreds of thousands every hour and they just run over and over
1: hackers can also try to look for a weakness or mistake in the code and try to get access that way but who are these hackers that we keep talking about and why might they want to get access to your smart device
0: They are all sorts of people. Sometimes they're people doing it for fun, just because they can, um, because it's quite cool to peer into somebody's home. Sometimes they are people looking to steal information about you for identity theft. Sometimes they're doing targeted attacks, so they're going after a specific person for blackmail reasons. Sometimes it's a nation state. North Korea's been implicated in all sorts of hacks in the past. Ditto Russia.
1: Yeah, in 2018, the UK and US governments released a joint statement accusing Russia of state-sponsored hacking on a global scale.
4: Today, the US Department of Homeland Security, Federal Bureau of Investigation and the UK's National Cyber Security Centre have released a joint technical alert about malicious cyber activity carried out by the Russian government. The targets of this malicious cyber activity are primarily government and private sector organisations, critical infrastructure providers, and the internet service providers supporting these sectors. Specifically, these cyber exploits are directed at network infrastructure devices worldwide, such as routers, switches, firewalls, and the network intrusion detection system. Russian state-sponsored actors are using compromised routers to conduct spoofing, man-in-the-middle attacks to support espionage, extract intellectual property, maintain persistent access to victims' networks, and potentially lay a foundation for future offensive operations. Multiple sources, including private and public sector cybersecurity research organisations, have reported this activity to the US and UK governments.
1: As the statement alleges, Russia was, and evidence suggests still is, using compromised devices to gain access to data and to wage attacks on online infrastructure. North Korea, meanwhile, is thought to have stolen billions of dollars in attacks in the last few years alone. In their 2021 report, cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike even went so far as to say that the number of attacks will only increase as the country reels from the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. So a hacker could be someone just having a prod around, trying to see what they can gain access to. Or that could be someone, or indeed a nation state, trying to gain access to a camera or a microphone or to get into your network to get hold of sensitive data. But as with the story of the college hackers at the start of the episode, there is a very different way that hackers can use your smart devices as part of what's called a botnet. I had a long chat with Kate about all this, try to get my head around what a botnet is and how someone could hack, say, a connected printer and use it to take down the internet in Liberia.
0: Botnets are networks of devices that have been compromised by malware when they've been hacked.
1: Cool fact I found, courtesy of Google, malware is short for malicious software.
0: And the reason for doing that is to create an army of literally zombie devices. They're waiting for an instruction from their command and control center. And all these devices are joined together by malware that's been silently installed on these devices. And that can be a printer, that can be a camera, that can be all sorts of devices. And then they can be used for nefarious purposes. If the malware fires up, it basically calls up that printer. So it's like it's calling up a reserve army. It's calling up the printer and saying, OK, we need you. Come and fire off lots of instructions at this server to take it down. So it's essentially, it's like you put a beehive into
1: my printer and at some point they poke the beehives and all these bees come out and it's the swarm that essentially takes down the internet.
0: That's a really good way of putting it.
1: That network of malware-infected devices is called a botnet. And if you poke the beehive, if you call up those infected devices to all start accessing one website or one server or a set of devices, then that can overload them. It's called a denial of service. That's exactly what those students did on a big scale in 2016. But there are lots of smaller examples. For example, when hackers left the residents of two apartment buildings in Finland in the freezing cold For nearly a week by launching a denial of service attack on their thermostats so okay it is possible to hack a smart device but realistically how often does it actually happen well which has recently done a brilliant experiment to find out and you've already heard from the man who helped set it up and run it matt lewis
3: we partnered with which and the Global Cyber Alliance to set up what's called an IoT honeypot. It's a network of devices and systems gained to attract uh, real-world attackers and adversaries. So in one of our offices, we mocked up an entire home network with all manner of weird and wonderful IoT devices, everything from uh, smart TVs to kettles, plugs, uh, a deep fat fryer, some cool stuff. And we exposed it to the internet, and
1: we just sat back and watched So the honeypot was set. But did any hackers come a-call in?
3: Literally within minutes of turning it on and exposing it to the internet, we saw those brute force attacks coming in, automated attacks, trying default usernames
1: and passwords against some of the
3: devices that we'd exposed.
1: Which computing editor Kate Bevan gave me more stats.
0: The Epson printer, in the space of a month, that had nearly 4,000 attack attempts. The Alexa devices, they had 766 hacking attempts.
1: We've got a video of our most recent hackable home honeypot experiment on the witch socials, so do go check out At witch UK for that. I asked Matt if he was able to identify the type of hackers having a go, and I assumed it would just be those opportunist individuals that I mentioned earlier.
3: After a few weeks, we delved into the data a bit more to try and understand some of the attacks and the nature of them. We did get some possible attribution to some known criminal groups in Russia with some of the activity that they were doing. I think that related specifically to the camera that we had, and they were trying to get access to the camera which, of course, in a real-world setting would allow them spying on a person's home.
1: Yeah, so someone in Russia tried to hack a camera that we set up as part of the WITCH hackable home honeypot experiment. I don't think they knew who had set up the experiment or that they necessarily care. It was just that they were seeing whether they could get access to it, which tells me if I connect a smart device in my home it's likely to receive hundreds of brute force hacking attempts almost as soon as it's connected to the internet. And that means I really need to turn to the most important question of what can I do to protect a smart device from such hacking attempts? And I'm not alone. In a witch survey we commissioned especially for this podcast, only 11% of respondents said they knew exactly what to do to ensure their smart device remains secure.
0: So
5: one of the issues, in fact, we put it as number one, was the issue of default passwords.
1: This is David Rogers, who was the lead author of the UK's Code of Practice for Consumer IoT Security.
5: You can probably tell me one yourself. Can you
1: name a default password?
5: Uh, the word password. That's um, a very good one. Yeah. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yes, that's another very good one. Uh, admin. Yeah. See, see, I can ask anybody on the street this question, and they will probably give me the same answers as you. But the horrifying thing is, is there are many products that are still out there that still use that. And so when we talk about hacking, it's not really hacking if everybody knows that that's the default password for these products. So if you reset some of these products as well, they will default back to that thing.
1: Changing the passwords from the defaults to something stronger is clearly one of the most important things that you can do to protect your smart devices. And we'll hear much more from David in next week's episode when we look at whether one smart device in particular, a car, could be hacked while you're driving it. As David has just explained here, though, for many of these home products, it only takes a quick guess of a very obvious preset password or number code, and any hacker would be in, free to do whatever they please.
3: Security is all about the weakest link, as in the weakest link will get you into a network or a system. And unfortunately, what we've seen in the domestic IoT space in some recent times is that a lot of the devices that are manufactured in that space are very vulnerable. They're not manufactured to any good coding standards. They come with default and easily guessable passwords out of the box. And this applies to things like fish tanks or webcams or whatever. So the issue is that these have vulnerabilities, but then they're connected to key and critical networks. So whether that's in the home environment, that's your home network, it connects to your home Wi-Fi, or in an enterprise situation, it's connected to an entire organization's network. And so attackers who know about or find the vulnerabilities in those IoT devices, exploit them, but then that instantly gives them a foothold onto the broader network that that device is connected to. And that's when you see the really big data breaches and exposures that result from those types of attacks.
1: So, we consumers can ensure we change default passwords, but it also feels like the hackability of devices does sit on the shoulders of manufacturers. After all, they are the ones who are responsible for their product's security, surely. But has technology perhaps progressed so fast that they simply can't keep up?
5: You can imagine that, you know, a washing machine manufacturer or a baby webcam vendor, they don't have that kind of experience and they've not been exposed to those kind of issues. And many of the issues that we tackle within that code of practice are really, really
1: fundamental and basic and they shouldn't be there. Yeah, back in the good old days, a company building a washing machine or a kettle would do just that. They only had to worry about how well it washed your clothes or how quickly it could heat up water. In today's world of innovation, where some people want an app to monitor their washing cycle or put the kettle on from the sofa, that functionality may simply be a quick add-on for manufacturers. At which we've been calling for new legislation that ensures the makers of smart devices adhere to a new set of measures. They include telling customers how long a smart device will receive security updates for. Something we believe is hugely important to not only make products more secure, but also to tackle the issue of tech obsolescence that we covered in series one. We've also pushed for a ban on generic default passwords, stopping products being sold with the sorts of passwords I mentioned earlier, like admin or 123456. We also want a clear point of contact to report vulnerabilities, something that would allow buyers or organisations involved in security testing, like which, to raise security vulnerabilities and get them fixed The good news is that the government seemed to be listening. In April, they announced the snappily titled Product Security and Telecommunications Infrastructure Bill, which, when in place, will ensure companies do follow these demands. However, the government did say the new laws would come into force in 2021. But at the time of recording this podcast in early October, there's still no news on when the legislation will be voted on in Parliament. While we're waiting for the government to act, what else can you do then to secure your smart devices at home?
3: Firstly, only buy from known reputable brands and research whether there's any known vulnerabilities in a brand or what the security track record of an organisation is.
1: Linked to this is the advice to not simply go for the biggest bargain.
3: A lot of the cheap IoT stuff that we see is just complacent. It just hasn't put security in as a consideration because of the lack of regulation and legislation around IoT. It means that anyone can build a device to any standard of their choosing, albeit no standard at all. It's simple economics. You might get good security from a trusted brand like Amazon with the ring doorbell, but then because they start selling quickly... There's a motive by the cheaper manufacturers to develop something as quick as possible and get it on the market and undercut Amazon with a much cheaper, yet, you know, really vulnerable device. I don't think it's necessarily even always then that they don't care. It's more just sort of the greed aspect of, you know, wanting to maximize sales. I think a lot of manufacturers just don't understand security.
1: When you've chosen your device and you've got it set up, as well as changing the default passwords, make sure you regularly do security updates to fix any recently discovered vulnerabilities. According to BusinessWire, the global smart home market is showing no signs of slowing, and it's predicted to reach a whopping $135 billion a year by 2025. And it's where it's likely to go next that has the experts talking. Remember Kosal from the light bulb experiment we spoke about earlier. As we were chatting, he dropped this into the conversation.
2: We're expanding the smart home ecosystem into like a smart city or like a smart building, smart offices, right? So you have these networks of like sensors put into all your buildings or city to put like the smart economic way of like energy saving or just connectivity to your citizens sort of thing. In our lab, we are also like trying to study what the impact of the smart city is going to be. And we're also like trying to
1: expand our research. But I think that is where the general trend is heading toward a smart city. Not just one device or a single home or office, but an entire connected city. Monitoring, measuring, remotely controlled, likely with elements of AI. Okay, we're not there yet, but our cities are already getting smarter and are more connected.
5: Connected things are not just confined to the home. Many, many different things within this internet of things, within lots and lots of different sectors are becoming connected. And that's everything from Things like traffic lights that people might not realise have already connected in some cases. You can imagine passenger information boards in railway stations, whole connected factories and chemical plants and so on.
1: To be honest, the first thing this made me think of was Die Hard 4, you know, where a cyber terrorist hacks into a citywide system and takes down various elements of infrastructure. So surely being connected and smarter is gonna raise the number of opportunities for hackers. The problem with security
2: is when you have such a large attack service. So in a smart home, I talk about like the devices, plus the apps, plus the mobile operating system, plus the network. So all of these things have to be secure. So as a hacker, all you need is one opening anywhere, and then you are in.
1: As always, I would love to know your thoughts about this episode. Has it made you think twice about connecting up more smart devices in your home? Or has it got you dashing off to change the default passwords? Get in touch. I am at Greg Foote and which is at which UK. Our next episode is almost a part two to this one. Of course, probably the most connected
5: of devices is the car. There are lots of new technologies within that item that make it a particularly interesting target for attackers.
1: Yes, we are taking this show on the road and we're asking, could someone take control of your car? And could they do that while you're driving it? I hope you enjoyed this first episode of the new season of Witch Investigates. As I mentioned, this season is all about tech and security. Our first season focused on claims of sustainability. I was digging into the evidence to discover whether buying an electric car or going plant-based or plastic-free does genuinely reduce your environmental footprint. Or whether some of these claims of sustainability are simply greenwashing. If you have just discovered us, hello, you're very welcome. Uh, maybe go back and listen to some of those investigations if they say. Sound interesting? Uh, we have got new reviews and advice every day on which.co.uk and as you've heard in this episode we're always testing out the latest tech to make sure you are fully informed about what's on the market right now. Do share this episode and this podcast with anyone that you think may enjoy it and if you'd be kind enough to go and give us a review and a rating over on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening that would be hugely appreciated as it does help others discover us. Today's episode was presented by me Greg Foote it was written and produced by me and Rob Lilly. Editing and original music is by Eric Briar and our executive producer is Angus Farker. Special thanks go to Richard Headland, Paul Lester, Andy Lachlan, Kate Bevan and the team at NCC Group. And I'll be back soon with our next investigation.